1: In that case,
0: I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: Hi everyone, and thank you for tuning in to an incredibly special 224th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and this episode is brought to you by the prime original series, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, from executive producers Amy Sherman-Palladino and Daniel Palladino, starring Rachel Brosnahan, Alex Borstein, and Tony Shalhoub. Consider it marvelous in all categories, including outstanding comedy series. Marvelous is but one of countless adulatory adjectives that has been used over the last 60 years to describe my guest today. The singer, songwriter, actress, producer, writer, and director, Barbara Streisand. Not many people are truly worthy of another adjective, legendary, but Streisand certainly is. She's one of the top 10 best-selling music artists in history, having sold 145 million albums. And if you look over her discography, you'll notice that of her albums, 53 have gone gold, 31 have gone platinum, and 14 have gone multi-platinum, all female performer records. She has also had the most top 10 albums of any female recording artist in history, 34, the most number one albums of any female recording artist in history, 11, and is the only singer in history, male or female, with at least one number one album in six consecutive decades. She is also one of only 18 people of either gender to achieve an EGOT, meaning someone who has won at least one Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, and Tony. If you count honorary awards, like her special Tony from 1970, along with competitive ones, in her case, four Emmys, eight Grammys, on top of her two special Grammys, and two Oscars, Best Actress for her big-screen debut in 1968's Funny Girl, and Best Original Song for Evergreen from 1976's A Star is Born. I could go on all day about Barbra Streisand's accolades, but like Linda Richman, I might get verklempt. So instead, let's get down to business. Over the course of my conversation with Streisand on the Warner Brothers studio lot in Burbank, the 76-year-old and I discussed a wide range of topics, among them. Why she so badly wanted out of her childhood home in Brooklyn, believed she was going to be a star from a young age, and pursued acting before singing en route to a fateful talent contest in the West Village in 1960. How her Broadway performances in 1962's I Can Get It For You Wholesale and 1964's Funny Girl propelled her to Hollywood, where, in films like Funny Girl, 1969's Hello, Dolly, and 1973's The Way We Were, she was at the vanguard of a wave of ethnic-looking performers who were not character actors, but full-fledged stars. Why she grew to want less to do with public performances of her music and more to do with the making of the films in which she starred, starting with producing A Star is Born and then directing 1983's Yentl, 1991's The Prince of Tides, and 1996's The Mirror Has Two Faces. Why, through the years, she has so enjoyed making and been widely celebrated for TV variety specials featuring her music, starting with 1965's Emmy-winning My Name is Barbara, and spanning all the way through 2017's Barbara, The Music, The Memories, The Magic, which she co-directed with Jim Gable, which beautifully captures her most recent concert tour, and which is eligible for this year's Best Variety Special Emmy, plus much more. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Okay, Barbara, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. It's an honor my pleasure. to have you. We always begin by just asking a couple of basics. Where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living?
0: I was born April 24th, 1942. I like these numbers, two and fours. Yes. Always been my lucky numbers. I was born in Brooklyn to my father, Emmanuel Streisand, mm-hmm. who was a teacher, an mm-hmm. educator, My mother was basically a housewife, Mm -hmm. Diana.
1: I've read a lot of interviews and things that you've done in the past and it seems like you've felt that you grew up not just without your father who died when you were very young but also in a way without your mother because even though she, I I guess she was a little emotionally gone after that and and even then your stepfather was not the most attentive. How do you think all that shaped you as a kid? It's got to have been tough.
0: I think that it all makes you who you are today. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I can't complain about that. It was a bit dysfunctional, I would say. (laughs) I was a lonely kid. My mother became a widow with two children Mm -hmm. at 34 years old. So that's why I felt that she left me as well, Mm -hmm. because she was emotional herself Mm -hmm. and caught in a bind and had to go to work and Mm -hmm. so forth, you know.
1: When did you first realize that you had a very special voice, and and did anyone else in your family also have one?
0: My mother had Mm -hmm. a very pretty voice, soprano, not like mine. Mm -hmm. And my grandfather, my mother's father, I was told, had a beautiful voice, and sometimes he sang in the synagogue Mm -hmm. as a cantor. Mm -hmm. You know, when the cantor didn't show up, they would use him. So obviously the DNA is somewhere in those vocal cords, you know, (laughs) between us. And by the way, I was about f- five years old when we used to gather around on the stoop mm-hmm. in Brooklyn and all the girls in my neighborhood, a few of my girlfriends, mm-hmm. you know, we would harmonize and sing. Yeah. And I was also, I loved the sound of my apartment house hallway, mm-hmm. the lobby, and it had a beautiful brass banister, I remember, that I loved to touch. And we would sing in there sometimes. I know I did. Yeah, because I liked the echo. But people the would echo. say to you that
1: yours <laughs> stood out compared to some of these others?
0: Well, I don't remember that, but I guess I was known as the kid on the block with no father and a good voice.
1: Oh, jeez. That was my M.O. <laughs> now, so many people, as you know, have grown up idolizing you. Who did you grow up idolizing?
0: Well, when I was 13, I, I fell in love with Johnny Mathis. Mm-hmm. And when I was 13, I also fell in love with Marlon Brando having... Mm-hmm. Just seen him in a guys and dolls, mm-hmm. and it was the only time I ever stayed to watch the double feature, so I could see him again.
1: <laughs> was acting as a kid more appealing to you than singing? I know you started taking acting classes very That's young.
0: Right. I did. I started taking acting classes at about fourteen, and then I got into—I had to audition for a summer stock company, mm-hmm. and I got in. I I think I didn't tell the complete truth about my age, but I did get in. And so that's what it started, my love of acting.
1: I know you were with Dustin Hoffman at one of these things very early on. Well,
0: he was in my class, my acting class at Kurt Conway studio. (laughs) But he was funny because he didn't quite tell the truth at my AFI tribute, which he so kindly appeared at. Mm -hmm. But he said we were both janitors. That is not true, Dustin. (laughs) I was babysitting for my lessons, and right. he was the janitor, <laughs> just to set the record straight. Uh, yes, yeah,
1: so <laughs> duly noted. One of the things that I learned from your episode with Alec Baldwin on mm. his podcast that I thought was really interesting was that you somehow, even though there were a lot of things in your life that would suggest becoming a star was, was not likely in the cards, you mm-hmm. were pretty convinced yourself, so much so that You told a story about being an usher.
0: I wanted to be in the theater. I Mm -hmm. wanted to be a classical actress. I played Medea when I was 15 years old, Mm -hmm. you know. She kills her two children for the love of Jason, her husband, (laughs) I think. No, I wanted to be that kind of actress. wasn't the movie, so I would usher at theaters Mm -hmm. so that I could see the shows Mm -hmm. for free. And get paid four dollars and fifteen cents <laughs> for the night. Right, but it was funny that I would kind of hide my head because I didn't want anyone to remember my face because I knew someday I would become famous, and I didn't want them to remember me as having shown them to their seat.
1: <laughs> that was pretty prescient. Um, <laughs> what do you think, though, was at the root of your of that kind of drive at a, as a kid, where you just. Anything to get out of the house and be on your own?
0: I lived in my imagination. I would eat a pint of coffee ice cream, briars, while I read movie magazines. <laughs> right. And dream that, oh my gosh, this looks so fun, you know, <laughs> to be a movie star. But I, I don't know if I ever thought I could be a movie star till later mm-hmm. when people told me, oh, you look like Nefertiti or, you know, something about my face. And, right classic or whatever. They liked my nose all of a sudden. <laughs> so I thought, well, why not?
1: So in terms of how it actually all got going, can you confirm, my understanding was that you were encouraged to do this talent contest at the Lion a Gay Bar in Greenwich Village. Which I didn't
0: know was a gay bar. didn't know it was
1: a gay bar at the time. So I
0: brought my friend and her husband, who was a doctor, and we, we looked around and we noticed we were the only two women there. <laughs> And then I got the picture. (laughs) Well, But they were a great audience. (laughs) Right,
1: right. Well, and that was the beginning of the gay community's love affair with you. I mean, they've never left you since. It's true. But so how does that contest connect to, I hope I'm pronouncing it right, or this is going to be embarrassing, but
0: Bonsoir? The Bonsoir. You said it perfectly. The manager of the Lion said, you know, there's a bigger club on the next block called the Bonsoir, and I think you should audition there. They might hire you. His name was Burke McHugh, I remember. And he took me over one night to the Bonsoir. And after a set by Larry Storch, I went on. I remember that, walking down the street in my thrift shop vest and thrift shop shoes, going to audition for that night. Somehow, you know, they liked me and they hired me.
1: Yeah. And... I know people have said over the years you should change your name, but the only thing that ever changed was the first name less than A somewhere along the line. That's right, yeah.
0: I just never felt comfortable with anything that was false. Change my name, but my name is my name. It's kind of special. My family is the only one in the world. Anybody with the name of Streisand somehow is connected to me, I think. (laughs) And Barbara was the one that I didn't like. But I didn't want to change it. You know, the record company suggested Joni Sands kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I said, no, my name is Barbara, but I'll take out the A. I mean, that was before records. Yeah, yeah. I was 18 when yeah. I took that out.
1: Right around the time of the Bonsoir. Uh, Bonsoir, right. Now, the other big thing, I guess, that happened, I think, on the first night at the Bonsoir, was you made a new, two new friendships that were pretty important over the rest of your career. Who were they? The Bergmans.
0: Oh, Yeah, I don't remember if that was opening night or was that another night. It was during the run. I guess Julie Stein had brought them down because they were working together. Julie Stein wrote Funny Girl Mm -hmm. as well as Gypsy. Mm -hmm. And I just remember a woman knocking at the door and her husband. And we had a tiny dressing room. I think it was me and Phyllis Diller. You know, about as big as a closet. <laughs> literally, we could hardly stand up to change our clothes. Right. And this very lovely, warm woman said something to me that was lovely.
1: Can I quote it oh. back to you? She asked you if you, Do you know how wonderful you are? And so, you guys immediately said, We got to work together. No. 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 Took I a thought. While?
0: I thought. See, I didn't grow up in warmth like that. <laughs> you know, she wanted to hug me. I I didn't know from hugs. Right. <laughs> And so it was like, who is this? <laughs> right. Do I know how wonderful I am? I thought not really. Yeah. I was suspicious of warmth like right. that, you know.
1: I guess through the Bonsoir you became better known locally, but what was the first national exposure? Was that the Tonight Show?
0: It was because I got a manager who introduced himself to me as the only Gentile manager in the business. <laughs> and it was lucky that his client was Orson Bean. Right. Because I don't think even Jack Parr liked me. That's what I heard. <laughs> so I could only go on when Orson Bean was on. Right. <laughs> and Phyllis was on that night, Phyllis Diller, right. She was lovely. Yeah, I had to fly in my first airplane flight right. from Detroit to do the that show.
1: So I had that date as April 5th, 61, the first one. And I guess you sang... Sleep and be on Mm -hmm, that first break. mm -hmm. And then within a year you were on Broadway. So was that a direct effect or just that you were already looking to get into, I mean, obviously you'd had this interest in acting for a long time, but Mm -hmm. what was that? How did you get that first break? I can get it for you wholesale.
0: You know, it was funny. I was in, I can get it for you wholesale. Mm -hmm. And Julie asked me to come over to his apartment. The Bergmans were there. I thought, oh, those are the people I met at the in the village and they wanted to play me a show and after I listened to it and eating a chicken sandwich on a folding out table (laughs) because Julie didn't have any furniture in his apartment except a piano I said you know that would be better for Carol Burnett it's funny I was always doing that you know the last time I was offered a picture cabaret and I thought you know I always think like a director, right. in a sense. I think it would be better to do it with younger women. Mm-hmm. And Talk I know myself a, out of a job, a, right? No,
1: there are other examples that we may come to of, of you uh, having done that, but I guess for anyone who doesn't know about I Can Get It For You Wholesale, everybody knows about Funny Girl, but this mm-hmm, was mm-hmm. two years before mm-hmm. its show about the New York garment district in the 30s. You came on for not a lot of time, right? But you made a very big impression. Why was that?
0: It's funny. When I auditioned for that, they gave me the music finally to to learn it after I had a first audition. And when I came back, I said, you know, I can see this being done in a chair. For two reasons, I'd like to sit in a chair. One, I'm nervous. (laughs) Right. And two, I think it would be funny to have her sing it in a secretarial chair rolling around the stage. Mm -hmm. So that's how I got the job. Right. But... When I got the part, and uh, they started to stage it, they kind of threw out my chair so and staged it on with a lot of people walking back and forth on the stage and i I never could make it work because it didn 't feel organic, you mm-hmm. know it didn 't feel real mm-hmm. didn 't understand what happened to the character mm-hmm. and so it it wasn 't working and then the night before we opened in Philadelphia, the first place out of town. Mm-hmm. I said, please, you know, I feel so awkward doing it this way. Let me do it in my chair. Mm -hmm. And Arthur and her Bros both agreed, okay, let her do it in the chair. (laughs) And lo and behold, that number stopped the show. Surprised me as much as anybody else. And the next day, my picture in that chair went outside the theater. So I guess it became the.
1: And we should just note that the character and the song that stopped the show because of you, Miss Marmelstein.
0: Miss Marmelstein, right.
1: In the middle of the show's run, it looks like in October of 62 is when you sign your first recording contract. You're just 20. This was with Columbia Records, which I believe you're still with all these years later. I'm Loyal. Yes. I guess that you were willing to give up certain things in return for greater creative control. How did you Mm -hmm. know even at that age that that was important?
0: I felt different. You know, it's like when I saw I had never been in a nightclub, by the way, before I sang in one. I didn't know that you're supposed to dress a certain way or wear gowns and fancy clothes. I only love thrift shop clothes. They were, from years before, they were gorgeous. There was handcrafted beading and silks and satins and... I just thought they were gorgeous. That's what I wore, and they were affordable because my shoes, you know, were like five dollars, two dollars, antique <laughs> shoes from the twenties. Right. Gorgeous. Right. Little did I know when I got off stage the first night, I wore a pair. The whole inside burnt from the, <laughs> the the heat of my body. Right. So I just believed I couldn't do what other people did. I I couldn't stand up on a stage and sing certain songs and wear fancy dresses. Mm-hmm. It didn't feel right for me. Mm-hmm. So I said, you know, if I'm going to be on TV, then I'm going to do a show or special. I can't be a hostess like... I had done a show with Judy Garland. Mm-hmm. She was warm and lovely, and she she knew how to be that hostess. But I thought to myself, I can't do that. I would have to do something... That felt right to me, mm-hmm. something more abstract, mm-hmm. something where I don't necessarily have to introduce people. Mm-hmm. I wasn't that kind of girl. I and wasn't, so even
1: at 20, with the as far as the recording contract, you knew you're not going to be willing to do some and, of these things. Uh,
0: and I'm not going to do songs that people tell me to sing. Right. I had my little repertoire from the Bolsois and the Lion. Right. The, those are the songs. They were not very well known. Mm-hmm. They were kind of obscure, mm-hmm. you know. And I thought, well that's who I am and that's what I like and I'm not going to change me to get famous.
1: Right. All during the show's run all during I Can Get It For You Wholesale's run you married your first husband Elliot Gould Mm -hmm. who was also in the show. You were starring in this Broadway show. You now had a big record deal and you were quickly becoming well known. I think it was just after that show's run that you made that appearance that you talked about on the Judy Garland show. That's in October of 63. How did you handle though this is a lot coming at someone quickly, and we're not even up to funny girl. How did you handle it as a young person?
0: At that time, I wasn't fearful. It was like I was still kind of proving myself. Mm-hmm. So, and I loved Judy Garland, you know, I just thought she was wonderful and vulnerable, and I could see what happens. I could sort of see, oh my gosh, I better appreciate this time at 21 mm-hmm. or something, whatever I was. Mm-hmm. She was a bit shaky, and I just felt so much about her. We became good friends, actually. And that moment
1: is almost like a changing of the guard, because she was the great voice of her Mm -hmm. era, and it's Mm -hmm. just amazing. that. Mm -hmm. So 1964 comes along. How did you first hear about the part of Fanny Bryce in the show? You probably knew about Fanny Bryce the person, but the show, how did that first cross your radar? To
0: go back to the story where I was at Julie's apartment, And they played me something, and I said, That sounds like, that sounds very good for Carol Burnett, but it's not for me. And as Marilyn tells it, I went on to describe what I'd like to do, not knowing a funny girl. But I said, I wanted to be in a drama. I was an actress first, and I wanted a part, a meaty part, not a flighty kind of comedy musical. I thought it should be something that was a dramatic musical. And I described it in such a way that it was Funny Girl. And that's amazing. By by the way, I do believe in the power of the will. Yeah. It was like projecting something from my imagination that seemed to manifest itself.
1: It's amazing. And and another big relationship, I think, came out of that. I heard that the rehearsal pianist was Mr. Marvin Hamlish.
0: Oh, yes. I adored him. He was the rehearsal pianist on Funny Girl. And he used to just go get coffee in between playing the piano. <laughs> right. But we bonded, you know, we were both Jewish kids. And I think he was from Brooklyn, too. Mm-hmm. He would go out and get me not only one chocolate donut, but two, you know, so we became <laughs> best friends. I always yep. talked about food and...
1: And we can remind people Went he, on to... he would go on with the Bergmans and write the way we were for, for you. So that was.
0: That's why I wanted him yeah. <laughs> to be the composer. Yeah. yeah,
1: May I ask you to remind listeners what the opening line of that show was? Because it's sort of become so associated with you.
0: Hello, gorgeous. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and did you ever think you'd be asked about that 50 plus years later? Mm, no. <laughs> and what about the songs from that show? There are so many mm. great ones, but it yeah. it seems like. People and, and maybe Don't Rain On My Parade are the ones that you are probably asked about the most from that?
0: I would say so. What is yeah. it
1: about those songs that causes them to endure that way?
0: Well, I guess people is a, a very important statement. I mean, through any kind of time of tragedy or, or what the world is going through now, even, it's people who need people. And I argued with Deb at the time. (laughs) I said, maybe it's people who don't need people are the luckiest. That would be interesting to act. You know, that's like the song, If I Loved You. Right. You know, it's something to act. Right. It's a defense. It would have been a defensive character singing, you know, people who don't need people are the luckiest (laughs) people in the world. But, you know, they went out and I'm glad they did.
1: Right. Most of the songs that you've sung have been written by others, people like the Bergmans and Hamlish and, you know, great people. There's no reason if you've got people like that willing to write great songs for you, why not do them? But I just wonder, it seems like in the decade or two after you first hit the scene, the singer-songwriter became a bigger thing. Did that appeal to you or were were you happy to have mostly sort of songs that were furnished that you could then put your own spin on.
0: That was true until I did the movie A Star Is Born. Yes. And I had hired Rupert Holmes after I heard a interesting record he wrote. And uh, then after two or three songs, I think he got overwhelmed with the idea of how many songs we needed. And so he left, and I was left to create a song score. Yeah. And that's when I thought, by the way, I was very impressed with people like Joni Mitchell who mm-hmm. could write and and sing their own songs. So I started to take guitar lessons mm-hmm. and I happened to, you know, be obsessed with this guitar. And that's the scene I just put back today in the movie A Star Is
1: Born. That's awesome.
0: And it was so true. I mean, here I am playing and singing this song without any lyric, you know, and driving my family crazy because I played it over and over (laughs) and different chords. And Marty, my manager, who has just left, who's 88 years old now, said to me when I played it for him, he said, it's going to be a hit on January 15th, you know, 1977. Mm -hmm. I think he was a week off or a few days off, but it became number one.
1: And that song was? Evergreen. Yeah. (laughs) I think we should say that In 1965, a year into the Broadway, Mm. after Funny Girl started, this really connects to the present. You Mm -hmm. made your first TV special, Mm -hmm. My Name is Barbara. And obviously that starts a thread that connects all the way through Barbara, the music, the memories, the magic. What was the appeal of doing a TV special even back then at the beginning?
0: Well, I loved film, but I wasn't sure I would be able to be a movie star but this was like film to me. I had a great team around me, Joe Layton, Dwight Hemian, Peter and Tom John. Tom John is still alive. It's great because mm-hmm. we keep in contact. But it was just such a close-knit group mm-hmm. with no ego. In other words, whoever had the best idea won. Mm-hmm. And somebody had suggested we go out of the studio Because the shows at that time were studio shows with guest stars, and I thought that was the greatest idea. So we chose Bergdorf Goodman (laughs) and designed that piece.
1: I think it won an Emmy.
0: It won five. Five. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) No, I was very proud of that show, because I wanted to do a children's thing. Yeah. So some of the musicians became children musicians. and led up to the big song people with a whole orchestra. You know, it just was, I remember hearing, I'm late, I'm late, and it gave me the idea of just making that as a thread through all these rooms until she gets to that big room with all the musicians coming together.
1: That's awesome. I want to ask you about concert touring generally, which, mm-hmm. again, connects to the the most recent special. Mm-hmm. In 1967, I know you gave this concert in Central Park. It's like 150,000 mm-hmm. people there. And you've said that something that happened there caused you to not want to tour, basically, for the next 27 years. Right. What was
0: that? I forgot the lyrics to What Are My Songs. And it just so threw me. Because things were going wrong. You know, I thought, oh, my God, I am so vulnerable. All these apartment houses looking over from Central Park West, from Fifth Avenue, the police, we had 300 policemen assigned to us. And they took away 270 of them before the show because the Russian diplomat Kasigan came into town and they, they left me with 30 policemen for all those people. So it was very scary. And then as I was singing Happy Days Are Here Again, I noticed the camera light went off. And I thought, I can't believe this. They, they've lost the camera because I did another special called Color Me, Barbara, mm-hmm one of the first shows done in color. And there were three cameras and two of them went dead. Oh, my God. So I thought that's what happened here. So that was depressing. I later found out through my researcher that the director of that show, Robert Shearer, wrote a book. And he talked about he turned off the lights because he wanted me. I like to be in charge. After all, it was my company making it. So, the fact that he did that without telling me was was throwing me. That's right, when yeah. I did my first specials, I always had monitors on the stage so I could see what was happening. But we all worked so beautifully together. There right. was, you know, it was a wonderful experience. That's what I was used to. I wasn't used to somebody turning off a light, so I thought the camera right. was dead. I don't even know how I sang it. I thought, I'm doing this well. well. It's not being recorded. So,
1: uh, I, I want to ask you about. The start of movies for you because yeah. Funny Girl obviously was on Broadway just this phenomenal mm-hmm. success and mm-hmm. you ever you had everybody's curiosity at that point they want to see what what couldn't you do this was now a f- your first film though you're the mm-hmm. star you're working with maybe the greatest director of them all William mm-hmm. Wyler, mm-hmm. and I guess I just wonder what it felt like for you also because up until really you and Dustin Hoffman and Elliot Gould and George Siegel and Woody Allen, that wave of people, I guess, at the same time, Mm -hmm. movie stars didn't look like you or me, Jewish people. I mean, you're a lot better looking than me, but I just, my point is that, (laughs) you know what I'm saying? (laughs) Sure. We weren't
0: conventional looking. We weren't, remember in the 60s, the early 60s, wasn't it? Or the late 50s, the the movie stars were Sandra D and Mm -hmm. nice, sweet looking blonde girls with flipped up hairdos. And that was very different than... The women of the 40s films during World War II, when men went to war and so women could have better parts, Mm -hmm. they became stronger characters. They actually wore men's business suits Mm -hmm. and so forth, you know? So it was a sign of the times. They weren't used to somebody like me, I don't think, who had opinions, by the way. Mm -hmm. And thank God, William Wyler and my cameraman, Harry Stradling, were so divine as people so open to me Mm -hmm. so open to my suggestions and every morning i would come in and show willie scenes from out of town in philadelphia or boston and say is there anything in here you like and he would pick and choose well i like that but i don't like that Mm -hmm. but we were he allowed me to sit and watch dailies with him and harry you know i came in with lighting ideas and he probably recognized me as one of those women kind of from the 40s yeah and who had opinions. You know, Marlena Dietrich supposedly knew about lighting. I mean, knew about when the light felt right.
1: You worked with Harry Schradling four times, I think. Garbo had the same guy. I think Billy Daniels a number of times. you just, right. You exactly. felt that he Oh, made my you.
0: gosh. And what was happening to me was that the press, at the time, there were a lot of gossip columnists mm-hmm. in, in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And they would misinterpret that. Or somebody would say, you know, she's opinionated. and mm-hmm. she, And they didn't get that. Do you first. think that's
1: where the whole I do. diva kind of thing started? I do, because
0: I yeah. am not a diva.
1: Uh-huh. You no, know, I, mean, I it avoid seemed... that kind of thing. And it seems and... like any woman that is assertive got that label.
0: Exactly.
1: Well, I guess one other follow up about that, though. Did you ever get pressured by these studios who would do things like take people's molars out to make their cheeks sunken in all kinds of crazy things? Over no. the... They never said to you, you need to change anything about yourself. Did you get people that were leaning on you to do that?
0: Well, before that, probably, you know, yeah. why don't you change your nose or why don't you... I was always a little cross-eyed at times, <laughs> but I'm not going to... What do you do about that? <laughs> I mean, I don't know. You know, I wasn't conventional looking, but something about me caught on. Yeah,
1: maybe that's the very fact. Maybe people... Most people don't look like Sophia Loren. Most people can relate her or in some ways want to be more like... Not... Well, Betty
0: Davis was never... right. You know, it wasn't Lana Turner. Right. Sophia Lauren, I love her. And she's absolutely gorgeous. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. Inside and out, too. But she didn't like her profile, so they really never shot her in profile. <laughs> I mean, it's always, that it's always, always happens. Yeah. People don't like certain things about themselves, right. you know?
1: Can you talk about Oscar night? That was a pretty crazy, not only that, how it turned out, but the way it turned out that way. They announce it's a tie.
0: I, I couldn't believe it. I just couldn't believe it. It was
1: because first they say Katherine Hepburn, right? Yeah. So and I figured
0: that's fine. She was great in that part. Right, I would have voted for her. Yeah. I probably did. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that was shocking and wonderful, I must say.
1: For a first role, I think only three other people have ever won Best Actress for their first Is that film right? role. Oh. But you follow that a year later with Hello, Dolly, which was the most expensive movie musical ever made at that point. Gene Kelly's directing. You're with Louis Armstrong. Just all this stuff. Were you concerned... I mean, I thought
0: I was too young for the role to play Dolly. To play Dolly. Yeah. I thought they should have used an older woman. And I talked to Marty, I said, Can I get out of this? Because <laughs> I don't even understand the pairing of me and Walter Matthau. Right. You know, it's not romantic, it's right. not, nobody's going to root for us to be together. Right. And I, I was so different also because, again, I had come from working with these uh, wonderful men, Willie Weiler and mm-hmm. Harry Stradling. I must say, the producer, Ernest Lehman, was my friend, Mm -hmm. and Michael Kidd was my friend. But it was a different kind of atmosphere. Yeah. Very different.
1: I wonder, with just a few of these other really terrific Mm -hmm. ones along the way, if if, just if I can prod you and whatever comes to your mind, we'll go through a few of them. What's up, Doc? Was that the first time you really got to show your comedic side?
0: Well, I thought I I showed my comedic side in uh, I Can Give You Wholesale. Sure, but I mean in a film. But in a film. Yeah, I thought I was funny as Fanny Bryce, didn't you?
1: That's true. That is true. <laughs> the year after "What's Up, Doc?" "What's Up, Doc?" was seventy-two. "The Way We Were" was seventy-three. Mm-hmm. You have said Redford was your favorite leading man in a few different things. I think.
0: Well, uh, I had a lot of a lot I, of them. he was a lot up there. Of good ones, but he's up certainly up. The there, way yeah. it's
1: described in a few things, though, they say this is everyone's favorite wasp and everyone's favorite jewish (laughs) person (laughs) so it was like the meeting of the oh the religions right
0: no that's probably true i gave up certain scenes of mine just to have him i wanted to have him be very happy be happy he's doing the movie give him any scenes he wanted rewrite for him add them whatever because I thought he was that important to make that film work. Right. The chemistry it was uh, great. between us. Hubble. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and that's, of course, also you had The Way We Were, the song in there as well, which and an Oscar nomination for acting again. So that was a good one. Stars Born, three years
0: later. Also, you know, I get it very involved in the music. Uh-huh. So when the, when the Bergmans first wrote that lyric, you know, the first word of it was daydreams. I love that's my contribution to the <laughs> lyric. I said, you know, it doesn't sound right. It should be memories. memories. It's the the word you use at the end. Right. We need to start with that that's word. That's interesting. And then I did some more things with Marvin, you know, melodically. Right. So I like to do that, contribute to the music.
1: Yeah. So three years later, Star is Born, this was your first time not just starring in a film, but also producing it with John Peters, who you were, I think, dating at the time. Yeah. What made you want to have that added responsibility? How did you like it? I know the the critics Mm. gave you a hard time, but the public loved it.
0: That's right. Yeah, because, you know, it was a wonderful deal for actors who want to control their work. Mm -hmm. And so first artists gave the artist final cut. And that, and also gave them the responsibility that we had to pay anything over the budget. The budget was $6 million on mm-hmm. Star Wars Anything over that, you know, the artist had to pay. But for that, we got to control our films. Mm-hmm. So I loved that. Yeah. I loved it. And I loved the whole creative process. And that's, I realized I had to direct, you know, which I actually did. I mean, it, yeah, I had talked to the director at the time and said, You know, because it was his only second film. And I said, you know, I have to be responsible for this film. Every word of it. Right. Every musical song, every shot, in a sense. And so, do you agree with that? And he said, yeah, because I wanted wanted to say directed by me. Right. Not not me, but the person.
1: Well, and only seven years later, although I'm sure it felt like more because you'd wanted to direct all that time. Finally, Yentl happened, your first time directing, mm-hmm. and the first film ever to have a woman as a producer, writer, director, and star. Why was that the story you wanted to tell, and why was it so important to you to not just, you know, or, or how did you respond to having all of those responsibilities?
0: I liked it. Yeah? Well, you know, you it's one less actor to direct, because I'm <laughs> writing the script right. as well. I had many scripts, but finally I had to write myself. When you have a vision that's like that, it's like you you have to control it. What can I say? I mean, it was hard to get it made, in a sense, maybe because a woman is going to do this. A woman can be financially responsible. Mm-hmm. I like that. Mm-hmm. I liked what happens when the aesthetic meets the practical, Yeah. let's say. So you have to do certain things, but it has to be disciplined yeah. because you can't have that. You don't have every penny you would like. You know, I I enjoy that kind of creativity. It has boundaries. You can't have everything, you know, when you're making a film. You have to make compromises.
1: We should note, even though the Academy uh, was asleep at the wheel that year, that you won the Golden Globe for Best Director. Spielberg, I have here saying that he thought it was as impressive as any directorial debut since Citizen Kane. Uh, That must have all been pretty gratifying. I still think, actually, though, that as director... You are underappreciated because how many people can claim to have directed four different actors to Oscar-nominated performances? Let's just remind people Mm. from Yentl, Mm -hmm. Amy Irving, from The Prince of Tides, Nick Nolte and Kate Nelligan, from The Mirror Has Two Faces, Lauren Bacall. What do you like most about directing? Is it working with other actors?
0: First of all, it's how to tell the story. You know, how does the camera accommodate the actor who's going to be telling the story? So it's a design thing, you know, it's and then to get the best performances out of the actors. That's really my job. And it's what I love to do.
1: Well, so it was seven more years until you directed again. But that was The Prince of Tides, which I know you had been given a hard time about getting that one made, too. Mm-hmm. I guess in that case, it, it entered John Peters again, right? To some extent.
0: Yeah, actually, he was instrumental in getting I guess, was it Sony or Columbia at the mm-hmm. time? I'm not sure mm-hmm. to do it, he said. And
1: then you, you delivered. I mean, it was you, somebody has to give you the, the chance and help you get right, the chance.
0: Right, exactly. Um, you see, with Yentl, it was, well, it's an obscure short story. Who's going to be interested? Right. With Prince of Tides, it was a huge book by Pat Conroy. Right. And so that's too big. And maybe the movie will. no matter how you look at it, you get obstacles, you know?
1: And what was it the, with your, the third of the three features you directed? This is now five years after Prince of Tides. The Mirror Has Two Faces. It seems like the story is in some ways one that pops up in other uh, elements of the story pop up throughout your work. It's sort of the, the ugly duckling blossoms into the... Well, I
0: don't like the phrase ugly duckling. Okay. I mean, what does the ugly duckling mean? Well,
1: I guess what we mean is it's just... It's
0: the way to describe the odd person out. I, I don't know. It's but is that done. a
1: storyline that you personally, I mean, if you, you had... No not- I
0: loved the first film I made for Barwood Films, my company, Up the Sandbox. It was a total flop, but it was about something important. It mm. was the women's movement was happening right. then. And it was about a woman who was pregnant, but didn't know whether to just stay a housewife and have kids. But had fantasies about her, what her life could be, if she was a reporter, you know, if she was, uh, whatever, yeah. you know, a political person, or, you know, it was it was about what I was thinking. Yeah, I'm making an album now, and it's about that. Yeah, because it's it's either going to be called What's on My Mind, mm-hmm. or Walls.
1: Let me ask you this: yeah. If you had never walked into the Lion. Where do you think you would be today? What would you be doing if not this? Well,
0: singing was able to bring me into the movies in a sense mm-hmm. because I didn't want to be a singer, but I thought when I sang in those nightclubs, I could use my acting experience, my relaxation ex- exercises, my creating a, a face in front of me, the things that we learned, you know, in the method. And that's what I did on stage. I used my acting stuff Mm -hmm. you know to inhabit a lyric Mm -hmm. you know you can't really be a movie star if you're an ugly duckling see I was always confused about myself because on one hand somebody would write that phrase that I find offensive and on the other hand Cecil Beaton said you know I was one of the great beauties Mm -hmm. so I was always confused about how how I looked looked? I, I one minute I thought awful and the next minute, I thought, yeah, pretty good, girl. What's,
1: what's your favorite and least favorite thing about yourself?
0: Read my book. You'll read all, all right. about this.
1: But so back to the back to Barbara, the music, the memories, the magic. You've said you have actually, for someone whose career has spanned as long as yours has, you have not toured all that much. I think it was only Chris seven. Chris
0: Bodie told me that he tours 300 days out of the year. <laughs> so does Diana Krull. Right. And I have done... Since 1963 Mm -hmm. to now, 100 dates.
1: Yeah. And we've established why that probably was, dating back to the thing in 67. You'd rather have more control over the...
0: Well, I got frightened. I got frightened. So 27 years later, I decided I have to challenge myself and get back on the stage and perform.
1: That was in 94. That was
0: in 94. Yeah. And I decided I just don't enjoy singing live. Even though you have
1: all this love coming at you from the audience and they're singing your lyrics and all that?
0: It's a different experience. I'm having such fun now recording with headphones on. I don't care how I look. I don't care how I dress. I don't care. It's only about me and the music in my ears. When I'm on stage, I'm I'm not a person who can put those ear plugs in. Mm I've tried to do it, by maybe I have very small ear, <laughs> ear holes or something. Right, but I can't. I can't get them in my ears, and I can only make the sound I make when I've headphones on, and I can hear the music back in my ears. You know, I love the audience. Meaning, I love being appreciated. Of course, sure. you know, and I love the fact that it pays well, and I can buy paintings. <laughs> I did my last tour for a painting.
1: <laughs> Which painting?
0: Oh, it's A Little uh, Woman by Modigliani.
1: Okay. All right. I was just going to say, what was it that was for you, uh, maybe beyond the painting, what got you to not only do the, this most recent concert tour in 2016, but which had 13, 13 stops, I believe?
0: I took time off in between. Like okay. I did four here, right. six here. Because I just don't enjoy performing on a stage. So how did the Netflix or the special angle of it, the TV
1: special angle of it come in and the idea that the structure, it's so smart to have, you've had number one albums in six different decades. It You're going to do yeah, something. Yeah, it was my the,
0: manager, Marty's yeah. idea. I said, what am I going to do? I can tell you what I'll do filmically, Yeah, you know, and show bits of this and talk, sing from Yentl and all that. But what's the first act? And he said, well, you have 10, what was it, 10 number one albums in six decades and so okay good that gave me a point of reference that I could do
1: yeah I wonder if we can close with just a yeah. kind of a rapid fire just true or false about a few things I've read or heard or seen okay. or did you're tur- all
0: untrue <laughs> <laughs> or true um, but I'll tell you
1: I read that you turned down three leading roles in films that ultimately went to Jane Fonda they shoot horses don't they right. Blue and Julia is that true totally true why did you tear them down? Jo- because Jane Fonda when, has an IOU. for <laughs> I know. She sure does. I
0: want her to just give money to my heart center. That's right, all I'd like right, from her. Right. But anyway, because when I get, I get lazy, okay? I get lazy. And I don't feel like doing something. But for Julia, it was because I was editing A Star Is Born.
1: That's a good reason.
0: And then Lillian Hellman came to my house and said, how could you not have played me? I wanted you to play me. But I didn't know the directors at the time. If I knew it was Fred Zinneman, I would have had to yeah. find a way. To how I would have found a way to make that movie. Clute, I think I had played a prostitute in Owl and the Pussycat before that, so I thought, well, no, don't do that. <laughs> I didn't know. Again, it was Alan Pakula. And the first one, I thought, D- I'm kind of lazy, I told you. <laughs> Enough to... If you do that movie, you have to dance every day. Right. I thought, Jesus, I I don't know if I can do that, you know?
1: Okay, next one. You wanted to direct the film Hidden Figures, and Mm -hmm. as a corollary to that, would you direct another film or TV episode now if something came along?
0: Oh, yeah. I read scripts and I turn them down, but it has to be magical to me. As a matter of fact, I just signed a contract to do my next film. To direct? To direct. Awesome. You don't want
1: to share any further information.
0: I I shouldn't quite yet. I shouldn't (laughs) quite yet. Okay, next.
1: You've already seen the Bradley Cooper, Lady Gaga version of A Star is Born? What do you think?
0: Well, I mean, I saw it. It wasn't finished yet, but it's a lot like mine. I mean, it starts the same way with a concert.
1: And I think there's even the scene with her playing the guitar. What? Maybe I just—that's
0: the scene I just put back the in the movie. The one you put it, yeah. Because it was—I realized it was very important for her to say, "I sing my own songs and I'm, right. I write them." And right. So for to make her that singer-songwriter, right. And their relationship gets cemented kind yeah. of in that scene and I say it's all the truth when yeah. I did this scene you know many years ago it was like I say look you know I'm, I'm shy I don't play the guitar very well I I don't have a lyric it's not finished and right. he says go ahead you know just sing it Yeah. and so I sing it the way I sang it for Marty Wow. when he said and you know he but I'll, the ending is cute I'm not going to tell you the ending of I'll the sing. new one uh, no the ending of mine of yours of course that's yeah, yeah. going back on Netflix oh, oh cool I also redid the ending. I do a long song at the end, and it was seven minutes long when I did it originally. We took it to preview in Arizona, and it was so the numbers were so good ninety six percent good and excellent that I left it alone, and i never I never cut in the rock and roll footage. That's what I just did now. So watch closely now. At the end is a rock and roll version. That's awesome. A film that took three weeks to find. In the vaults in Kansas City in these salt mines.
1: Unbelievable.
0: So at the last day, I had one day, in about two days to cut right. this thing.
1: Amazing. True or false, you would act again, especially if you could, I heard if you could play Mama Rose and Gypsy, would that well, get I really, you back?
0: I really wanted to play that part, I must say. That would have been my farewell on screen. Mm-hmm. And it was a bookend to me, to Funny Girl, written yeah. by Julie Stein. And I love Stephen Sondheim's mm-hmm. work. And I know that character because my mother was kind of like that. <laughs> and it's about the jealousy of mother and daughter.
1: You said you know? that on like a Christmas or something, your mother had, that's where you realized, right? About yeah. Just, that Dad, was, you read
0: uh, a lot about well, me, didn't I gotta you? I got
1: to do my homework. Come on. Okay. Okay. Last question is, <laughs> if you could only sing one of your songs for the rest of your life, what? this is going to tell us which one you have real feelings for the most. Which would that song be?
0: That's like Sophie's choice. That's like, <laughs> no. I mean, I I like the song I wrote, Evergreen. Yeah. But I like people. I like I like Happy Days Are Here Again. Yeah. I'm going to do another version of that on my next album. Actually, a different version because it has to do with the times mm-hmm. as well.
1: What, where does the way we were rank up there?
0: Oh, I love that song yeah. too. Oh yeah, I just get tired singing the same yeah. song. But one time I was singing somewhere and I said, "I'm not. I'm not going to sing my old songs. I'm going to sing all the songs from." It was a uh, clear day and uh, Hello Dolly. Right, and the audience was like, "What? You know, where's the songs we want to hear?" <laughs> And well, thought, it was nice
1: on the special, on, on the Netflix special, you mix it up. Like, yeah. I don't know that... That's uh, right.
0: I sang some new songs that I've never performed live.
1: Uh, from Willy Wonka and right. yeah, a lot of great... And
0: songs from Funny Lady.
1: Yeah. I love that you said you had forgotten you'd you'd sung the song.
0: <laughs> That's right. That is an absolute true story. That's With great. Liza Minnelli saying, I said, I heard her sing it right. <laughs> at the tribute to me at Lincoln, Lincoln Center. Center. And I said, boy, what's that song you sang? Right. Was that by Marvin? Thought, she said... No, that you sang it in funny. You know what's funny about me? I sort of don't remember things. Mm. I have to ask my assistant, ask her, she's right here, mm-hmm. did I win something for this? Because <laughs> people say, I think I say, I don't remember winning right. for that. I mean, I don't remember my awards.
1: Well, it's pretty, I, I guess. I just don't. The takeaway from your answer to this question, not many people would have this many options to pick from about which one. Oh, so oh. that's a... That's that says a lot there. So thank you for your time. It's a treat. Happy 50th anniversary, Funny Girl, the movie.
0: Oh that's yeah, one. that's one too, huh? What so, could I re-edit with there? From there? Yeah, I, I have something <laughs> that I'd like to put back in <laughs> one Thanks. of these days. <laughs> Goodbye. Thanks again. I appreciate it. Thank you. 18 plus.